Amen. Amen. So we're mixing it up today. That's why there's no worship team up there. They sat down, not because he was going to take a long time, but because we're altering service a little bit. Um, so actually, just to give you, we're going to have communion at the end of the service as we close up today, and that's when we'll be doing our worship time as well. And the reason that we're doing that is um, today is Palm Sunday, okay? And this week coming up is what, what somebody somewhere termed Holy Week. Uh, you won't find that in the Bible, but I understand why it's there. And, and then it culminates with Easter Sunday next week. And so this depends an awful lot on probably your church tradition and how you were raised, but uh, many of you come in this morning and it's Palm Sunday and it's Holy Week and it's Easter and there's Good Friday coming, so there's almost a buzz. There's, wow, let's, let's get this thing going and it's exciting. And actually, I did a little reading about some of that this, this, this week and some of it was troubling. I actually read one article that somebody had wrote, written and I don't know what church tradition they were a pastor of, but it's like basically emphatically said, you've got to be on your game on, on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. It's the most important two Sundays of the year, and you better bring, bring it that day. And I'm like, there's something my spirit saying, ah, I missed it, because we should be bringing it every week. Not every week, we should be bringing it every day. Okay? Now, I don't want to downplay the fact because holidays are there for a reason. It's so that we remember and recall. And we're going to talk about that today because today's sermon is entitled Remembering Jesus. And it's a big deal. Um, <clears throat> and actually, if you look over here, we take a little walk over here. We even got new decorations. You notice like all the white trees are gone, which are glad because winter is over. <laughs> Although there were snowflakes in the air today. And you notice the, the, the evergreen greenery on the windows is gone because... It's time to move on to spring and that kind of thing. And with that, we have that. So we've got purple highlights up on the wall. And then we've got over here, and if you, if you took a close walk over this way, and you see we've got palm branches, obviously for Palm Sunday, represents something. But then there's other things. There's a pitcher and a water basin. And depending on how familiar you are with what happened between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, all the stuff up here, all of it, has representation in the Bible story. The water basin, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. You've got uh, a bottle and a, and, a, and a wine glass. And then we also have the, the elements for communion here that we're going to take part of because on Good Friday night, they, they partook in the first communion. You've got bread, you've got a crown of thorns, and there's some big nails, and there's a hammer, and there's a whip. All of those things, and the crucifixion, and the trial, and all that stuff. And there's a lot to be said in all those things. And, um, but why is it a big deal? Why, why is Palm Sunday, Holy Week, Easter a big deal? I guarantee you that if you were to look probably in some generalized news outlets today and this evening, you will probably see some pictures of big giant services for Palm Sunday and definitely next Sunday. And for Good Friday, You'll, there'll probably be one again that will show the Pope in Rome with a. I'm assuming post-COVID, everything is kind of calming down. I don't know, but pre-COVID, you would always see the the Pope up in his thing with thousands of people during Holy Week. So why the big deal? 
What's the significance of these events? Why do we celebrate them? What does it mean? And that's what we're going to head to today. So I want to start today with, um, we're going to read the account of the, of the triumphal entry, which is what happened on Palm Sunday. Okay, John chapter 12. It's a little too long to put up on the screen. So I'm just going to read it right out of the Bible here. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. And it says this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Don't be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd was with him when he, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Okay? Now, I want to tell you, as I was sitting in my study this week, um, and I had thought about this while we were gone in Florida, but it didn't get any really... Um, and Tammy and I talked about this a few weeks prior, about you know Palm Sunday, Holy Week, Easter, and what kind of things to do. And, the, and I'll talk a little bit more about the... the, the, the Synergy Worship Night on Friday, Good Friday night this week coming up. But I, I kind of had an idea in my head, but then there's a, take an idea that you feel God's put there to bring it to a message. So I'm sitting in the study on, 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 on Thursday and trying to, Lord, where do we go with this or whatever? And I'll give you what, what it is. The, the triumphal entry is really an awful lot like the player introductions in a basketball game. I don't mean to de-spiritualize this or... Um, and I apologize if, if you are from more a high church background, but this stuff is real sacred. I don't want to tread on those things, but I do want to bring us back to the significance of things and get to the heart of the matter. Let me say that again. The Palm, the Palm Sunday triumphal entry really is an awful lot like the player introductions in a basketball game. Okay, It's extremely hyped with props, special lighting, music, special effects. If you've, I've never been to a professional basketball game, but they go way over the top. It's almost, <laughs> when I've seen a couple of them on television, it's almost embarrassing to see that they, you know. In, in actuality, Palm Sunday was that way. It was hyped. There were props. There was all kinds of things going on. It was full of emotion and fanfare. There were people cheering. You could actually say that the atmosphere was almost electric. There was a buzz in the air. And like I said, in a, in a big basketball game, the player introductions, there's an, there's, if, it's a, if it's a highly hyped game, the atmosphere is almost electric for the fanfare that goes on. But, but, <laughs> if you've ever been in a basketball game and played in a basketball game, the introductions is not where the game is won or lost. And it's not where the game is actually played. It's just a precursor to the real action that needs to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't significant things that occurred that day. 
but it's really not where the main event occurs. So if we can look at Palm Sunday at this introduction, and I, I don't have the right voice. I, could, I should grab the microphone that Jeff uses right now and say, and now from the little town of Nazareth is Jesus Christ. Okay, and in a lot of ways, that's actually what they did. There was no big announcer, but they were waving palm branches and they were laying their cloaks on the ground in front of him and putting palm branches down and they were shouting and they're cheering for Jesus. We actually say it, blessed is Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Kings. And they're going on and on and talking and, and shouting and yelling and cheering. And, and actually, in this John passage, later on it says, and it says, and those people that had seen him raised, that were with him, that they, they came with him from Lazarus' home, they had seen him actually raise Lazarus from the dead. They had been there. They're talking about, you think about this, there's, there's got to be conversation going on in the throng of crowds amongst the cheering and saying, this is the guy. This is the guy in there. There over there is Lazarus. That did you in there talking exactly what you'll be doing in a basketball game with 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 famous superstars. You're trying to get a glimpse and you're pointing. And man, did you see him in the last game and all of the great things? They're talking about Jesus that way. You know, this is the guy. We're finally getting to see him, and he's here. And actually, in the scripture, it also tells us that. And and this is something you need to recognize. Was the cheering? And was the excitement and the electricity and all that's going on on Palm Sunday because they really understood who Jesus was? And I'm going to tell you emphatically, no, not even close. I'm not sure there was a single person that was there that day that really understood what was going on. They're all pumped and excited, and, and there's some that are there for only one reason. I want to see this miracle worker. He's famous. Word has traveled. And there's others that wonder all these things here. Now, the other thing that's in the crowds, you know, as you think about on Palm Sunday, there were hecklers. So as the great introductions coming in the background, there's boo, not good. We know that. It says right here, the Pharisees, as they're seeing all this going, they're talking amongst each going, saying, see, this is getting us nowhere. In other words, he's popular, he's growing, and this is bad for business. This is bad for what we've got going on. Okay? In, in, and then the interesting thing is in, in the Luke passage of the same thing, they actually address Jesus directly in the middle of us and say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The things they're saying about you, they shouldn't be saying. Okay? Now, I want to focus now a little bit on Jesus' actions. Okay? To continue this idea here. Okay? Um, Jesus is simply riding on a donkey. I don't know if I've ever seen a representation, whether it's in a written form, a dramatic form, or a movie. And I say, none of those things really matter, do they? The Bible doesn't tell us too much, but I don't know if I've ever seen a representation of Jesus riding in on the triumphal donkey, a triumphal donkey, on the triumphal entry on a donkey, with great emotion and excitement. He's just riding a donkey. You know what there wasn't? There were no bows. There was no speech. 
There wasn't any working the crowd. There were no fancy handshakes or fist bumps or jumping around with the disciples. None of that. He just rode a donkey into Jerusalem. The fanfare, the fanfare was on the people that were coming. It wasn't Jesus. Not at all. If you ever watch player introductions in basketball games, usually, not always, but almost always, the better the player, the less emotion is shown during. When everybody else is cheering and going crazy, they got their eyes closed trying to focus on what? Because they know what's coming. It's an important game. And they're trying to get ready for the game. And I think sometimes it's just it's tolerating the stuff. Okay? You see, Jesus knows what the people are excited about. He knows what they're excited about. But he also knows something that they don't know. Why doesn't he show any emotion? Why doesn't he seem to get too worked up? Why isn't there a speech? Why doesn't he work the crowd? Why doesn't he take that opportunity when they're all excited to do something? Jesus knew as he's going into Jerusalem, which we're going to look at some scriptures in a few minutes that talk about this, he knew going into Jerusalem what was at stake. He knew what the real game was. Not the fanfare. He knew what the week was going to hold, and he knew how it was going to end. He knew what was coming. He knew what the real action was going to be, just like an athlete at the professional level who's played and played and played and played and played for years and years knows exactly what's facing them coming up. Jesus knows that the people are excited. He understands why. But he also knows that they were missing the real nature of what happened. Pastor, how can you say that? Because the Bible tells us. Take a look at this scripture right here. Jesus knows that they have missed the boat. (coughs) As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city riding on his donkey, or as he's coming, he sees, he comes up, he sees Jerusalem ahead of him. And it says, he saw the city and he wept over it. That should get your attention. You ever hear that? Ever heard anybody say that in a, in a Palm Sunday message? That Jesus was crying. He was. I don't, he had stopped crying, I think, by the time he got to where the crowds were. But before it all unfolds, as he's heading to Jerusalem, he sees the city. And the Bible tells us he wept. So that's not just weeping. <laughs> Isn't just a... He broke down. Why? He, broke, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. The reality here is Jesus, as he looks at Jerusalem, which is not the city, but the people that were there, the Jewish nation, the whole thing. He knew <coughs> uh, yeah, that wouldn't be a bad idea. I don't know if that's going to come back again, but he knew that they didn't understand what would bring them true peace. As he looks upon the city and thinks about the people, his heart breaks. He says, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you true peace. And then he says, but now it's been hidden from you. See, he also understood the plan. That they, he had come to bring them peace and they, had, they hadn't yet, but they were all going to reject him. He knew that they were excited and cheering because they thought... <clears throat> 
that he was going to finally set up his earthly kingdom. When they're shouting here, Hosanna, blessed is the king. Blessed is the king. I'm telling you, there's not a person in that crowd that understands what that really means. We do, and I think sometimes we portray on them what we know because we know the rest of the story. They didn't have that. They thought that finally he's come to Jerusalem at Passover to do what? To set up an earthly kingdom and rescue them from the oppression of their Roman conquerors. That's what they thought in Mass. Even his disciples thought that. They may have had a little bit of an inkling, maybe there's more to it than that, but they, I think they were in the same spot. Because they even asked him, not too early, much earlier than this, so when are you going to set up your kingdom, Jesus? They're totally missing the point. <clears throat> they realized in what they were expecting him to do was to bring back the good old days when the kingdom was like it was when King David reigned, when they were the world power, when they were the most important, when all those things used to happen. Jesus knew that they had failed to see, and they were failing to see and understand what they really needed deliverance from. They, although it would have been nice to be delivered from Rome, as Jesus is looking at Jerusalem and thinking about the people, he doesn't care at that spot that they're being oppressed by the Romans. He knows what they really need is what? Deliverance not from human enemies, but deliverance from sin and its power in their life. He knew that they had no idea what he needed to do in the game that was coming up to give them what they really needed. Wasn't even on their radar screen. Didn't even think about it. Didn't have any understanding. And they would not have any understanding about it until after he was gone and, and, and the Spirit came and gave him understanding. And Jesus was saddened by all that to the point where he wept. It moved him to tears. Why? They didn't recognize that he, God himself, in the flesh was here. If you only knew on this day what would bring you peace, that the God actually in the flesh was coming to Jerusalem to set them free from their sin. They didn't see it. They didn't know that he was the real answer to the fallen state of mankind. They had no idea. You and I, especially the longer we walk with Christ, we understand this at a level and we take for granted and think maybe that they had an inkling. They did not. So what does he do? This is before he rides to the fanfare. And again, going further this narrative of Jesus and not doing much in response, and doing really nothing in response to the cheers. He rides his donkey in, all the fanfare, and he continues to ride that donkey all the way where? To the temple. Scripture tells us he rides to the temple. And what does he do? He walks into the temple. And he looks around. Sees what's going on in the temple area. And then he leaves. No big deal. If you read, this is hard. <clears throat> I have a copy of it somewhere. But I, I, one time I went through and took all four gospel accounts. And it's hard because they, they're all giving it from their own perspective. It's all accurate stuff, but it's four different accounts from four different perspectives of how those events came about. And not all of them are in chronological order. So to try to understand that, but it appears the best we know is that he actually rode his donkey right to the temple. He went in and looked around on that initial day, and then he turned around and left Jerusalem and went back to Bethany where he spent the night. 
little precursor, it's not till the next day that he goes back to the temple the second time, and it's a totally different situation. He does not cleanse the temple the first time he shows up there. He just goes and kind of looks around. Again, very uneventful. Not a big deal. And I often say this, that <clears throat> this whole idea of the precursor to the main event, even looking at this, it's kind of like you have the cheers and all that kind of stuff at a basketball game. And I can picture this mine because I've actually, not, nobody ever cheered that loud when I was introduced, ever, ever. Um, but I've, I've watched games. We just come off of March Madness. If you're a fan and you watch some of that stuff there, and the farther you go in games, the more big deal they make about the inductions. But the pros go way over the top. But your, your big players actually really don't really seem to get too excited or too engaged or even feel, they don't even take their warm-ups off until they get all done with that stuff. And then if you're a player, you know what happens. After the play introductions, where do you go then? You go back to the huddle. And then things start to happen a little bit more. Your coach reminds you of what really needs to happen. And you realize you still haven't actually started the game yet. When Jesus goes, he goes all the way to the temple, he scopes it out, and then goes back to Bethany to spend the night. It's kind of like the huddle before things actually happen overnight. Who knows what interaction he has with God overnight that night, his father. We don't know. The Bible's silent on that. But Jesus is very well aware through all of this stuff what the main events really are, what the main purposes are, and what's going, what, how, many, how much detail he understood of every day that he was going to do. I'm not sure that that was all there because he's fully God, fully man. I know he knows the big picture. You say, well, how does he know that? The farther along you go, and I'm going to read some scriptures later, and then it indicated that he kind of was very well aware. And he told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And they rebuked him for it. So he knew, I'm not sure he knew exactly how it was going to happen, but he knew that it was going to cost him his life because that was the plan. <clears throat> now I want to give you, if we were to go back to this using this whole analogy again, it's kind of like the introductions. I'm going to give you the the. Holy Week game highlights, if you will. And this is the hard part about us being here today on Palm Sunday, and hopefully you'll come back Good Friday night as part of that. But you know, a lot of times we go from Palm Sunday and then we jump ahead to Easter, and we don't ever look at. There's, you know, what is amazing if you go into your Bible and you look at when the triumphal occurred in the Gospel account, and you look at when he was crucified. There's a good chunk of those Gospels that occur during that spot there. Some of them, I think it's almost half of the narrative in the Gospel, is in that one week. <clears throat> he didn't just hang out. Jesus did a ton of ministry and a ton of profound things from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. Highlights. Okay, I already told you this. He left to go back to Bethany that night. The next day, he goes in and he cleanses the temple. A different side of Jesus that we rarely, if ever, see. His emotion is angst and actually, you know, anger and indignation. He kicks out the merchants. He knocks over their tables. As Scripture, Luke 19 says, and he says this, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he causes quite a ruckus and quite a scene that day. And that's on, that's, on, that's on Monday. Going on through, he also curses a fig tree that causes it to wither and die, which I'm not going to give you an explanation on. I'm not even going to preach about it. I'm not even going to talk about it the rest of the week. But it's one of the events. It's one of those It's a head-scratcher sometimes. I still don't understand what that's all about. But it happens. He daily is making this trip back and forth and back and forth, and he goes to the temple and he teaches. A lot of his most profound teachings occurred at the temple during Holy Week. 
Also, what happens during Holy Week? There's a plot to kill him. So you got this, you know, if you could see a good movie or a good game, you got a game within a game. You got all kinds of stuff going there. Well, while all that's going on, there's also this plot over to the side where the Pharisees are scheming. How can we kill this guy? How can we get rid of him? Okay? You also have Judas who happens to show up and says, what will you give me if I give him to you? And Judas betrays him for money. You have in, the, in this Holy Week also another main event, the Last Supper. That in and of itself is a huge thing. We could, we could talk for days about all the things that occur in the Last Supper. And he, in that, he, he institutes communion. He, he washes his disciples' feet. There are lessons in servanthood in that. And he gives extensive teaching to his disciples. We often think of the Last Supper as they just broke some bread and then went on their way. But this is a whole evening full of Jesus interacting with them and doing the things that we would remember, but also there's a lot of teaching that he went on that we would say he took that opportunity to share with them the things that they really, and that we need to know. Then we have the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested. He undergoes a trial. He's beaten to within an inch of death. He's crucified and killed, laid in a tomb. All those things are part of the game. And I want to tell you right now on, the, in, in, on, on different locations, links from our website, on our social media pages, all those things, and also on the back at the information booth in paper form are some readings for this week. Um, I do a devotional generally every week that I preach. I do a devotional that kind of either picks something out of that, furthers the sermon or whatever else. And, and lately what they've been doing is a lot of them have extra scriptures that you just can't fit into the message. What I did this week is I, I went and did some searching around online and different things, and I found um, readings that you can use starting for today that take you all the way to next Sunday that, you, that, that takes the gospel accounts of what occurred on each one of those days. So you can actually take one of those. If you don't like paper copies, there's, there you, it's electronically available on our website and that kind of thing there. Um, you can look those things up. But again, they allow you to be able to, you could read today what occurred on Palm Sunday, the passages. Then you can go tomorrow and it'll take you, it'll give you a list of scriptures to read for Monday, what occurred, and so on. And also in that are some reflections. Each one, each day has a reflection question. That makes us reflect and bring those things to a personal nature because there's lessons in it, okay? Now, I want to tell you this whole Holy Week thing and this whole thing from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday and the culmination of all that, it's a classic game. And I don't use the word game loosely, but um, I, I just, that, this is the analogy I got, and I'm just, I'm just telling you it's, it's a classic game. It's one that has gone down in history as, right, really, realistically, the most important event that has ever occurred in the history of mankind, is what we're talking about in this week. The most important one. You say, well, that's your opinion. No, it's not. Our whole calendar is based on this stuff. You realize that? And, and actually, even in a post-Christian world, the world still will come to a stop this week. Not always for the right reasons. But even people that never talk about anything to do with God will talk about each. I'm sure that our president will actually say something in this week acknowledging the fact that it's Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And I tell you right now, we have long since ceased from being a Christian nation at a core. We're not even, you know, post Christian, we're non Christian. 
in our practices. But yet, even here in the good old United States of America, <laughs> you know the crazy things that happen right now? Restaurants run specials all the way through the month of Lent because some faiths say don't eat meat during Lent. So what do they do? They have fish fries every Friday night. You ever wonder where fish fries on Friday night came from? I haven't really researched on the internet to see if it's true, but I'm pretty sure it occurred because for years and years and years you didn't eat meat during Lent, and one thing that was okay is to eat fish. And so let's have fish fries. Okay? So we have these things that go on that we don't even realize. We just take for granted. They're all built there because of this whole thing that revolves around Jesus showing up in Jerusalem and being crucified and remembering it. A classic game, one for the ages, and I'll throw this out there. Some of you, this is going to go right over your head. Other people are going to go, I remember that, remember that. This This is a better situation, more exciting actually, than when Christian Leitner hit his last second shot in the game, classically, when I was, I was probably my about 20 when this occurred, and I can still remember being at the bowling alley in Watertown, which no longer exists on Washington Street, standing there, watching the end of this game with a crowd of people standing there when he hit that shot. When it's thrown the length of the court, he catches the ball, spins, and hits the shot, win the game. This is better than that. This is better than when NC State won their championship, when that guy pulls up from like halfway between the three-point line and midcourt, he pulls up, takes a shot, and it's, oh, it's way short, and this big dude grabs the ball and lays it in at the buzzer to win. And the, the underdog, North Carolina State Wolfpack, wins the championship. Better than that. This is better. This has got bad memories for me. It's better than when Reggie Miller hit eight points in eight and a half, in nine seconds, and my dad's laughing to beat the Knicks. You know, I'm, I remember watching that game that night going, it's in the bag. We're up eight points, eight and a half seconds to go, and they lost. And I still look back, how I watched the clip a hundred times. How in the world do you do that? You know, as a coach, how in the world do you do that? Well, it happened, okay? I'm just telling you that this is better, better than any last-second heroics in any sporting event that has ever occurred, bar none. Like I said, I just used three references, and I'm sure there's at least one person in the crowd that got absolutely none of them. Okay? But there's something about this story of Jesus because of the spiritual implications and because it's got power in it that is riveting for everybody that watches it and follows it through, even if they don't know Jesus, because the truth sets people free. And I think the drama in these things that go on really grab our attention. Do you remember, some of you are old enough to remember, it hasn't been too far distant history when the movie of the Passion of the Christ came out and it was showed widely across the United States and all the maybe movie theaters. I went, I don't watch movies often, just, just we, Tammy and I have just never done that. It's not one of our things we do very often. But we went to that movie and I can remember a massive crowd, and I'm sure there were a lot of Christians there, but there were other people that are just watching it. And I'm telling you, there was an eerie, there was going in, the regular stuff going on, but the longer that movie went on, there was an atmosphere in the room because it depicts graphically the crucifixion of Christ. And I'll tell you, when we walked out of that place, you could hear a pin drop. Everybody was silent and walked out. And they walked out. Because there's power in the gospel. There's power in the message of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you that there is so much in this whole story. There's, there's much drama and there's many noteworthy things that grab our attention. And it gets to the end. And this is a classic. You couldn't write this any better. You get to the end of Holy Week before Sunday. 
And you know what it looks like? It looks like the superstar who was announced as the, the, you know, with all the fanfare that's announced at the beginning, it looks like he has lost. It, he's, he's dead. It looks like he's lost, that he has failed. That's actually what it looks like. And you know, that's what makes big games in sports so exciting, is everybody has counted a team out, and then something almost miraculous or crazy happens to change the whole narrative. And this, it doesn't get any better than that. He's literally dead in the grave and did not accomplish anything that his followers thought he was going to do that week. But, in a miraculous, last-second event, Jesus is victorious. He rises from the dead. He rises from the dead. And we're going to talk more about that next week. I want to tell you that Jesus was focused on what really counted. On victory. On victory over sin. To release humankind from the curse of sin once and for all. He is ultra-focused on that. As he comes into Jerusalem before the fanfare ever occurs, through the fanfare, all the way through the whole week, all the way through his beating, all the way through his crucifixion, and dying and laying in the tomb. The whole time he's focused on singularly one thing, is delivering mankind once and for all from the curse of sin. He didn't get excited about the fanfare on Palm Sunday. Why? He was steady, he was focused, he was diligent, and he was disciplined for the whole week that was going to lead up to the crucial moments that would end the week. And you know what? Just like, and he's better at it than, it's, than any superstar athlete has ever been, Jesus shined best at the end of the game. He shined best at the end of the week. He shined best in the last events that went on. Jesus was intent on defeating sin in mankind once and for all. He knew that it needed to be done. He knew what it would cost. And he took that burden willingly. It's one thing to be shocked by it, but something occurs when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's begging his Heavenly Father to not have to go through it. He even asked the question, there's got to be another way. Isn't there another way? Can't I avoid this? And the answer was no. This is the way it has to be. And so what does he do? He takes it willingly. And as I was actually, I was listening to Bonnie, and I had my notes open, and I look at this spot, the thing there, and this scripture comes to mind. He set his face like flint. He shows great determination. And I want to read to you a scripture. This is prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50 speaking about Jesus. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue. It's not he's given me. Jesus, this would be Jesus speaking. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed t- uh, tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. 
Think about this. Jesus speaking about himself right now. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. And you know what caught me this morning is I'm just, just, just reading, I've read that many times. But the fact that Jesus being fully God, but yet fully man, Jesus needed to receive instruction and teaching from his heavenly Father. He needed direction daily to know what he was supposed to do next. Don't ever so deify Jesus that he walked the earth that he didn't... He, had, he constantly was this battle going on with him of his humanity and having to do that. And I believe he really had to receive instruction just like you and I do. Now, he didn't have all the, the, the foibles and the things of sin that actually would cause him to not be able to understand. But listen to what he says again. You have given me a well-instructed tongue to know the words that will sustain the weary. His heavenly Father gave him the right words to speak that would sustain the weary when they needed it. He wakens me morning by morning. We read so many stories about him getting up early in the morning and going off by himself to pray. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ears to listen like one instructed. In other words, he would start his day off at times seeking God, and then his ears were attuned to his Heavenly Father as he went through his day in a lot of along-the-way experiences where he would come across somebody that needed something, and he was in tune with God saying, go there and say that. Go there and say that. And it continues on. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. Now listen to this. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. Do you realize how many years this was written before it actually occurred? It's, it's, it's kind of weird because you look at it, you would think, well, that was reflection on after what had happened. Isaiah prophesied this before hundreds of years. Maybe thousands even? How, how, many, how many hundreds of years? Did anybody know roughly? About 400 years before it actually occurs. He writes this. And guess what exactly what happens? Jesus is beaten to within an inch of his life and laid his back. I laid my back and that's exactly what they did. They'd strap you to a post and beat you. And that's what happened to him. And then it went on to say, and what? And pulling out the chunks of beard. We read the gospel accounts. Guess exactly what they did is they were mocking and maligning and really getting, the guards were giving it to him. They actually grabbing his beard and pulling chunks of hair out. And if you're a guy, you know how that can kind of feel. Those chin hairs, they don't feel good when they get pulled. It's worse than this up here. Okay? I didn't hide my face for mocking and spitting. One of the things that's amazing when they were saying things about him, accusing and making fun of him, the Bible tells us he was silent as a sheep before its slaughter. He didn't defend himself. Why? Because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Now here's the thing. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. And if you can look at Jesus and get this visualization of him on that donkey going through, why doesn't he react to all of the fanfare? Why? Because he had set his face like flint with determination to accomplish what God had sent him for, what he needed to do, which was what? To deliver mankind from the curse of sin once and for all. So how should you and I react to the greatest victory ever? The greatest win ever? Should we do it with fanfare? Waving palm branches and cheering with emotion? 
declaring the wonders of this King of Kings and Lord of Lords, talking about the miracles that he's done in our life and in the lives of others. You probably think, nope, we're not supposed to do that. No, I'm going to say we absolutely should do all of those things. We should cheer, we should get excited, we should have fanfare, we should wave palm branches and even more. Just going nuts and crazy about all that Jesus has done. We should declare the wonders of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords and how magnificent and wonderful He is. And we should tell everybody that will listen to us and even that won't listen to us about the miracles and the wonderful things He's done in our lives and delivered us from. All those things are absolutely okay. And you know how I can tell that? Because Jesus never once spoke up and rebuked any of those people that were cheering that day or doing any of that stuff. He never told them, calm down, guys. This isn't important. The real stuff is coming later. He let them do that. In fact, he went a step further that he defended them when the Pharisees said, rebuke your followers. He says, no, I will not do that. And if I did, the rocks would cry out if they didn't say this. In other words, it was perfectly appropriate and the right thing for them to respond. Although the things, it's interesting, all the things that they were sharing and saying were accurate, but had a, you look at it now, we know what it means when it says King of Kings and Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We know what all that stuff means, right? But they didn't. It's interesting. Even in the midst of their being misguided in their cheering, they're still declaring the truth. And you and I are a lot like that. Understanding becomes further and further and further the longer we walk with Jesus. Okay? But there's more. What else should we be doing with this? You and I should be, have the heart of Jesus in this. We should be seeking to understand what would really bring us peace. Because Jesus was heartbroken that the people did not know what would truly bring them peace. And I'm going to tell you right now, we should be seeking to understand what would really bring us peace. I'm going to tell you right now, and it's not having the correct person as the president or the right political party in charge. That's not what's going to bring me peace and you peace. It ain't going to happen. Okay? That's exactly what they were hoping for at that time. We want Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom and to be our Messiah and get rid of these terrible, awful Romans. And Jesus is like, you missed it, guys. That's not what will bring you peace. What you really need is deliverance from your sin. It's not having healthy finances or a secure retirement that's going to bring you lasting peace. It's not having the good old American dream, which is a house and two cars and a picket fence and a dog and kids and a good marriage and all that stuff there, although having good, a good marriage and good kids and being financially stable is a wonderful blessing. But that's not what's going to bring you lasting peace. No, what you and I need is something that will bring peace, not externally, not emotionally, but bring peace to our inner man and our soul. You and I need to understand that we need to be forgiven of our sin. And that's the only thing that will ever bring us lasting peace. We need to understand that you and I are unable to control effectively and direct the affairs of our own lives. And how desperately we need somebody else to direct the affairs of our life and control them, being God. You and I need to actually recognize the fact that we need to actually lose our lives, which means give control of them to God so we can gain eternal life. 
And that's what truly brings peace. And brings peace that lasts. The other thing Jesus says in that scripture, if you only knew what would bring peace to you. And it goes on, and he wept. Another thing it says in there that he wept that they did not understand the nearness of God, how near God was coming to them at that time. You and I need to recognize the nearness of God in our lives in this day, not 2,000 years ago when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, but today, the nearness of God. Today, in this room, at this moment, the nearness of God. Jesus, just like he did that day, is coming close to us. Not on a donkey today, but his presence is here today. He comes close today. He's pricking our hearts, whether you know him as Lord and Savior or whether you don't know him as Lord and Savior. He's pricking our hearts today. He's speaking to our inner man. He's working at revealing himself. He's trying to show us who he is, the significance of who he is, the significance of what he did and what that means to us. He's trying to get us to understand, to, to lead us to true understanding, a true eternal understanding of all this spiritual stuff and how it affects us. And what he's trying to lead us to are treasures and blessings that really last, eternal treasures and blessings that can't be taken away from us, that will stand the test of not earthly time, but eternal time. Those are the things that he's really trying to do. And we should also take note today of how Jesus wanted to be remembered. You know, going back to the sports thing, sports writers and journalists and authors write books about famous athletes. And it always comes most of the time from their perspective or how they perceive things. The best books are written, though, when an author actually takes the time to interview the athlete and then reflect from the athlete's perspective. And they'll often then give you the indelible mark of how they should be remembered. Not how everybody else thinks they should be remembered, but how they actually should be remembered. And it comes from those that were actually there. And I want to tell you that we can learn a lot about how we should remember Jesus by his own declarations. Okay? Jesus said at the Last Supper, he actually used this word, He's this phrase, do this in remembrance of me. Actually, many churches have a communion table, and that's engraved right on the front of it. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay? And it is true that communion in and of itself, the actual ceremony is meant to be done in remembrance of me, but there's a lot to that. And one of the dangers of communion is it can become rote, old hat, we just do it, and we never actually get the real intent of what Jesus was saying there. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Now I want to show you this. I'm going to read this scripture to you too. It's uh, in, in Luke. <clears throat> when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread 
gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus wanted and still wants us. Don't put it in the past. Jesus wants us to remember what he did and why he did it. Okay? Jesus wants me and you to remember what he did and why he did it. Jesus died on a cross. He was, his body was beaten and broken. He was a mess. Why did he do it? That's what he did. Why did he do it? To take away my sin. To take away your sin. To solve my sin problem. And to solve your sin problem once and for all. Jesus shed his blood to cover my impurity, my sin. He shed his blood to cover your sin and your impurity. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The gruesome death that he died, why did he do it? For the forgiveness of our sin. And he wants us. He wants us to fully realize what really brings peace. And what really brings peace is found in what he did and why he did it, but with one other thing. Remember what he did, why he did it, and to walk in it. Okay? It's possible, and it happens all the time, to remember what he did, to remember why he did it, and then to go through a communion ceremony and never walk in it. And that won't bring lasting peace. Because the only reason we take communion is to remember what he did and why he did it and to continue to walk in it. Not just on Palm Sunday and not just on Good Friday and not just on the three or four other times here at this church that we do communion or however often you take communion. It's not just on that ceremony day. This is something that we are to remember and to walk in every day of our life. Not necessarily taking communion every day, although you could if you wanted to, if that's what helps you or whatever. The bottom line is what Jesus is really after. Remember what he did and why he did it and remembering that it's his death on the cross and my receiving that forgiveness of sin and making him Lord of my life in control that will bring lasting peace. I beg of you today, don't, as Jesus, if you could picture this today, that if Jesus came riding, a donkey wouldn't fit. What kind of a car would fit for a donkey right now? If Jesus actually came driving into our parking lot now in a, a Mini Cooper, that's actually too fancy. It's got to be, a donkey's not, if you really wanted to have fanfare, you'd come on a horse back then. He came in a donkey, a beast of burden, probably his pickup truck, a beat-up pickup truck. <laughs> I don't know that either. That's too flashy. I don't know. You let that be what you want. And he drives into the yard. Heaven forbid, as he's looking not at Grace Community Church, but he's thinking about the people, and he breaks down and weeps and says, if you only knew what really would bring you peace. And then he says, and now it's been hidden from you.
He, he wants us to know that peace is available to us because of what He did on the cross 2,000 years ago and the fact that He shed His blood to forgive us of our sin. And He's bidding us not just to take communion, but to walk in forgiveness, to receive that forgiveness, to be repentant, to let God forgive us of our sin. I go back again. There are readings this week. The Good Friday Synergy on Friday. Those readings are there to remind us of all that Jesus didn't accomplish during Holy Week. It would be good to read those. And then on Friday night, we're going to have our Good Friday night service here. A night of worship and contemplation. What does that mean? There's going to be a lot of chance for you to sing, but also there's going to be other times for you to think and contemplate built into that. There'll be some video and there'll be some songs that are done up on the screen that when the worship team's not going to be up. If you want to sing, you can sing. But the whole idea is to worship and thank God, but to also to contemplate what Jesus did, why he did it, and what our response should be. We want to thank him for what he's done. We want to receive that and walk in it. Now, we're going to actually take communion here in a few seconds actually participate in what Jesus actually said to do this in remembrance of me. The worship team is going to sing some songs and, and we've got the, just one station this morning, so it might take a little while. It won't take that long for people to come. You're going to be free when we, the worship team will come up first just simply so that they can take communion and then get up on stage and start playing and stuff. But as the music starts or even as soon as they're done, feel free when you want to to come up and take communion. Okay? Um, and we'll, we got you know, three four songs to go through. We'll worship and that kind of thing. So if you're not taking communion, by all means, sing, pray, reflect, whatever you want to do in that. But I challenge you this morning to take communion remembering. Doing exactly what, do this in remembrance of me. To remember what he did and why he did it. And you need to start with that at a personal level. It's not the time to think, oh God, I am so thankful that you died on the cross for the sins of the world. No, Jesus, you did it for me. And reflecting on your own junk, your own stuff, that you don't want to tell anybody because it's just dark and it's nasty, the things that you've done, and recognizing that he bore your sin on the cross. Do it in remembrance of him. And why he did it. So that you can have true peace and not have to live in fear anymore. Let's remember what it cost him. His very life. Now, some people say, who can take communion? Anybody can take communion. Scripture does have a statement. I'm not going to do a long thing on this, but the Bible exhorts us, challenges us. Um, it's a pretty strong statement that we're to take it in a worthy manner. I'm going to tell you what that does not mean. Does that mean that you have to be perfect? Nope. Because if it was, let's all leave. Because not a one of us that is worthy from a per perfection standpoint to take communion. Because everybody in the room, everybody that's listening online has sinned and fallen short. Okay? So it's not possible on our own to be perfect. So who can take communion then? those that have been washed in his blood, those that have come to him for forgiveness of sin, 
those that recognize that the dying on the cross and the shedding of blood was for my forgiveness of sin, and I've accepted that. And it's interesting, in that idea of worthiness, that passage, I'm going to tell you, this is, this is a serious situation. To get up and take communion without truly thinking about and recognizing the significance of what Jesus did and why he did it for me personally is an insult to him. It actually, and I use the word, it cheapens what he did. It doesn't because you can't cheapen that. But in that moment, for me to just get up flippantly, to walk up there and take communion without truly considering what he did, why he did it, and the choice for me to walk in that is not a wise thing to do. And actually what it does, it puts another level of callous on your heart and you're heading in the wrong direction from being soft-hearted to hard-hearted. And if you do that over and over and again, it becomes a rote, a thing that you just do, and it, it's, it's not penetrating the way it's supposed to. So I ask you this morning, anybody in the room is welcome to take communion, but you need to do so with the understanding of what Jesus did and why he did it for you personally. And you're, you're, you're walking up and taking communion is actually a confession as you go through and take the juice and the bread, which represents his body and blood. When you take that in, what you're declaring publicly this morning, I receive it. I receive it for the forgiveness of my sin. I receive it um, for all the power that goes into that to bringing new life, which we'll talk about next week. And if you can't do that, you're better off to stay seated this morning. You really are. But I don't want him to say it to scare you. You say, I've never asked Jesus in my heart, then do it right now when I pray. <laughs> if, if God has pricked your heart this morning, if you're listening online or you're here this morning, and you've never declared Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you've never asked him to forgive you of your sin, but there's something that's going inside your heart's being taught, I ask you this morning when I pray, you say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, be the Lord of my life. And then come up here and willing to do that as a public confession that Jesus... I've asked your forgiveness and I've declared you as Lord. I challenge you to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you did and why you did it. I thank you personally for what it, what it means to me that you bore my sin on the cross. That your shed blood covers that sin. And that when God, when you look at me, you don't see me. You see the righteousness of Jesus. I thank you for that. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would impact each one of us, that your spirit even now would be pricking hearts and working in our lives and really reminding us and helping us to remember in a full way. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be afraid of taking communion, but that we can do it from clean hearts, not that are perfect, but hearts that have come to you and said, forgive me. Lord, I pray right now, Lord, if people can agree with this prayer, Lord, even forgive us now, right now, for the things that we've done. Let your blood flow fresh over us right now in this moment, if we're willing to have that happen, to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we step forward, Lord, that, that whatever emotions you desire us to have, would occur as we reflect on what you did and why we did it and as we interact with you around communion. Lord, that we would be obedient and do the very thing and remember you the way you wanted to be remembered, which is for what you did on that cross and what it means to us. And Lord, I thank you for the power that's in that. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we'll do...
worship team could come on and take communion and then come on up and take their stuff on. And as soon as they're done, the, as a congregation, just take your time. You can form the line if you want to. You can sit in your chair till it's open, but we will keep playing music until everybody's had a chance to take communion and worship.